Um, and uh, today we are continuing in the book of Colossians, looking at, if this works, it doesn't work. We're looking at Colossians 4, 2 to 6. Colossians chapter 4, 2 through 6. So let me pray and then we'll read that passage and reflect on it for a few minutes together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We, we recognize that we live in, a, in an age that is privileged in so many ways, but most of all, privileged in that we have such easy, ready access to your word in our lives. And so we pray that we would approach it with great gratitude and hunger and expectation, knowing that this word is your word to us today. You are speaking to us, you are with us, and that you are even right now training us and equipping us for, for lives of godliness by your word. And so we pray that we would approach it with that spirit of gratitude and joy and expectation and delight. And we pray that by looking at it, we would be men who are changed more and more into your image, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we've been in the book of Colossians this fall. Maybe it did go. We're not gonna worry about it. We've been in the book of Colossians this fall. And if you've been tracking with some of the main themes of the book of Colossians, you know that, uh, that one of the primary themes of this book is the danger of worldly philosophies and worldly uh, spiritualities influencing Christians. Uh, the danger of, of, of other ideas, of competing ideas, um, other mysteries, other elemental spirits, other philosophies encroaching on Christians. And the antidote that Paul gives for that is to see that it is in Jesus Christ alone that we have truth and life and wisdom and power and redemption, that we have all that is necessary and all that is true in the Son of God, Jesus Christ. He is truly divine, and by his cross, he has made peace for us with God. And so that's the great antidote, the great uh, protective measure, the great weaponry we use against the, the influence of the world against us is to center our faith and our hope and our life on Jesus Christ, to be found in him, to be in Christ and to have the mind of Christ and then increasingly to have lives that reflect Christ. Here in Colossians 4, we have just a short passage where we shift from a defensive mode, a posture of, uh, of protecting ourselves against the influence of the world and we move into an offensive mode just for a few verses. We think about uh, Paul leads us to think about how is it that we as Christians influence the world? How do we do offense as the church? How do we 
in lives of increasing godliness bring the hope and the power and the beauty and the truth of Jesus Christ into a world dominated by false ideas and rival philosophies and false spiritualities? How do we as Christians influence the world? And so this may sound a bit ambitious, but I want to think about this passage under that lens, how Christians influence the world, how Christians influence the world. And there's three ways. See if you can pick up on a few of them as I read Colossians chapter four. This is verses two through six. You've got it on your outline there. You may also open uh, your, your Bible. Colossians four, beginning in verse two. Paul says, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer each person. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So three big ways that, that Paul guides us to see how Christians influence the world through these verses. Number one, Christians influence the world by being devoted to pray steadfastly. Devoted to pray steadfastly. That's where the passage begins in verse two. It says, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Um, when we think about Christians influencing the world, um, many of us are, are doers, are fixers. Um, and we may be quick to simply jump into the problems of the world. We can influence the world by identifying a problem and going and fixing it. And we're gonna move quickly and efficiently and strategically. And that may be our impulse as men, but Paul reminds us we can do no good for the world and play no positive influence in the world unless we pause and remember that in and of ourselves, our influence on the world is actually gonna be evil and bad and corrupt. We need to be praying men. We need to be people who continue steadfastly in prayer because in and of ourselves, we bring nothing in terms of positive influence. It is God who influences the world for good. He is the one with all power, all wisdom, all authority, all might, all truth, and so the first thing we must do before we begin to do anything for God, we need to talk to God. We need to be people of prayer, people who recognize that in and of ourselves we can do nothing. We need the power of God to influence the world. We need his wisdom. We need his power to be at work. And we see this, if you think uh, in biblical history, of some of the men who were world changers, culture changers, key influencers in society. You think of, you think of people 
like Joseph. Joseph rising to power in Egypt. Joseph, a man of prayer. You think of Moses. Moses was um, above all confident that he could not speak to Pharaoh, that he could do no good, that he had no influence in and of himself. He was, he was nervous. He was a man of prayer. You think of, certainly, Jesus. If there was ever one who in and of themselves actually could change the world, it was our Savior, Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man. And yet, what do you notice he does before he begins the launch of his public ministry? He goes to the wilderness to pray. And he encounters great temptation there, but he's committing himself to prayer and regularly in his ministry, withdrawing to pray on the eve, of course, the eve of his arrest and crucifixion. What is he doing in the garden and what does he ask his disciples to do with him? To pray. Prayer is that regular step of preparation for doing the will of God continually in our lives. And notice, Paul does not just say, pray and then go do stuff. (laughs) He says, continue steadfastly in prayer. Prayer, the biblical vision of prayer, is that it is not a discrete, limited activity with a beginning and an end, or that it would only be connected to certain occasions, like I pray before a meal, or I pray before I go to sleep, or I pray... Um, when I'm called on in a public setting. But the biblical vision of prayer is that prayer is something continuous. It is not a discrete activity. It is a way of life because we are perpetually in need of God's wisdom and strength and mercy in our life. And hopefully all of you feel that reality You feel the reality that you are weak and needy and broken, and the solution is not work harder or think of a better idea. The solution is to be continually, steadfastly in prayer. And so Paul's first great encouragement, if we are going to be those who influence the world, those who change the world, those who play a positive role among the outsiders surrounding us, we must be men of prayer. John Piper once called prayer a wartime walkie-talkie. It's a wartime walkie-talkie. And that's an incredible, helpful metaphor to think of. Um, We see this happening in the early church. As you think about... um, the early Christians, these apostles and early believers in Jerusalem, lighting a fire through the power of the Holy Spirit for the spread of the gospel throughout Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth like Dallas, Texas. How did that happen? Well, it happened, yes, by the power of the Holy Spirit, to be sure, but it also happened by those apostles and disciples and early Christians devoting themselves to prayer. So flip to Acts 4 real quick. Acts chapter 4 gives a great picture of this. Peter and John have just been before the council. They've been told to stop speaking in the name of Jesus Christ. They tell the 
the Jewish leaders, they say, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, but we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. They have given bold testimony for the Lord Jesus Christ. And then they come back and they, they circle back with the other apostles and the other believers. And it says that chapter four, verse 24, it says, when they heard it, heard the story of what had happened to Peter and John, they lifted their voices together to God and said, or prayed, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people's of Israel to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. While you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. That's such a powerful passage because Peter and John could have come back to the apostles and the other believers and said, guess what we did? We stuck it to them. They told us to shut up and we didn't. Look at us. They could have beat their chests. They could have said, y'all do what we did. Be bold. But what do they do? They come back to their friends. They come back and tell the story of what God did and they pray. They pray in thanksgiving for what God has accomplished and they pray pleading and interceding for God to equip them and fuel them to speak with boldness. And that prayer that they pray is, is a lens of how Christians change the world. It's through the power of God. Notice that they give credit to the Lord. They give credit to God for being the one who is accomplishing things in the city of Jerusalem. They said, it is you who stretch out your hand to heal. It is you who are doing signs and wonders. It is by us speaking of and speaking in the power of your servant, Jesus Christ. It is not about us. When we think about the church influencing the world, it is not about us. It is not about our wisdom. It is not about our resources. It is about what God is doing through us, his humble servants. And for that, we must continually, steadfastly pray. So prayer, being devoted to pray steadfastly, that is the first step if we have any desire, any hope of being people who would influence the world in a positive way. Second, in these next couple of verses, we see that uh, if Christians are going to be those who influence the world for Christ positively, we must be determined to proclaim Christ. Determined to proclaim Christ. And so Paul says in verse three, he says, pray for us that God may open to us a door for the word 
to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Paul asks these Colossian believers, this Colossian church, to not only pray steadfastly for for all kinds of things, but to also pray for him and for his fellow apostles and fellow ministers. He is is reminding them that he, as an apostle, and uh, men like Epaphras, who have been set apart as ministers of the gospel, have a special duty to proclaim the word of God with clarity and with boldness and to declare the mystery of Jesus Christ. And so he asks these believers to pray for him and to pray for the others charged with that special responsibility. And what is it that he says that they want to pray for? Two things. Number one, pray for a door to be opened. We've used that language a lot over the last couple years here in this church, praying for new doors in our church. Not merely new architectural doors, but new doors to bear witness to outsiders. To those who are not Christians, we pray for new doors to be opened. And that's a euphemism that the New Testament uses. That's not a PCP-ism. That's a euphemism and a metaphor that the New Testament uses continually in the lens of evangelism, that doors would be opened. A door for the word, as Paul puts it here in Colossians 4. Now, what's incredibly ironic and even self-sacrificial that Paul would ask the Colossians to pray for a door for the word? Where is Paul? Where is he writing from? He's writing from prison. He's writing from prison. And this is probably uh, house arrest. We don't need to think of, you know, a dark, dank Alcatraz-like prison. He's probably under house arrest. But he's still bound. He closes this letter of Colossians, if you look at the very last verse, remember my chains. Whether those are literal chains being bound within a private home or whether those are figurative chains of simply having freedom within the space to move around but not being able to leave, Paul is in prison. He is bound. And so it's fascinating that his prayer request to these believers is not pray that the door of the prison would be opened. That's already happened for him once in his ministry, but that's not what he prays for. He doesn't say, pray that I would be able to get out of prison so that I could do some good for God in the world. He prays that right where he is, even in its limits, humanly speaking, that God would be faithful to open doors, to open doors to speak the promise and the hope and the truth of the gospel to the outsiders, his captors, who are with him, who are near him. Paul isn't looking for a change in his circumstances in order to bear witness to Christ. He is simply asking for the Spirit to soften hearts and open doors and create opportunities of conversation with the unbelievers around him. In so many ways, that's what we need to be praying for 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 our pastors, for those set apart to to preach the word, for doors to be opened for them, for our pastors, for our missionaries, for our evangelists to go and to 
to speak the word of the gospel to all kinds of people in all kinds of circumstances, but, but this is also a charge for us, for all of us as believers. We are all called to be witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We are all called to have an answer for the hope that is within us. We are all given a general obligation and privilege of being evangelistic witnesses to Jesus Christ. And so we ought to think as Paul thought, where I am in my circumstances, in my financial circumstances, my geographic circumstances, my relational circumstances, my vocational circumstances, these are not limits. These are the places God has put me. And may God open the doors with a neighbor, with a waiter, with a coworker. Would God make clear to me where he is opening doors for me to declare what Paul says here, the mystery of Christ. What's the mystery of Christ? Well, if you flip back to chapter one, verses 24 and 25, sorry, verses uh, 26, 27, Paul defines the mystery of Christ in verse 27. He says uh, that God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The mystery of Christ is that those who place their faith in him have union with Jesus Christ, that there is this fellowship and participation in Jesus Christ such that what Christ accomplished on the cross in defeating sin is credited to the believer, such that the power of Christ over sin and over death is given to the believer. And so that as chapter three reminded us, we can put sin to death and live to righteousness. That's the mystery of Christ, is the, the power of the gospel, both in justification and in sanctification, because of our union with Christ. And that's the thing that we ought to be declaring declaring the truth and the promises and these incredible doctrinal realities of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is the special duty of pastors and evangelists and missionaries, but it is also the duty and responsibility of every believer to see those open doors and to be faithful to walk through them and to speak of the hope we have in Jesus. How many of you guys know the name Frank Reich? Frank Reich, head coach of what team? Indianapolis coach, Indianapolis Colts. Getting my words confused. Head coach of the Indianapolis Colts. I love Frank Reich. Originally knew him because I grew up and still am a big fan of the Buffalo Bills. I do not advertise that widely in the city of Dallas. If you remember the mid-90s, the Cowboys beating the Bills two years in a row, thank you very much. I still remember crying in my mother's arms. Um, uh, but Frank Reich, if you remember back to the playoffs in 1993, January of 93, Frank Reich um, was the back, he, his career in the NFL was basically, he was the backup quarterback to Jim Kelly for the Buffalo Bills. He was a backup. But Jim got injured in January of 93. Frank Reich filled in the Houston Oilers had a huge lead over the Buffalo Bills in the playoffs. And Frank Reich led the Bills to the greatest comeback, what is still the greatest comeback in NFL history in terms of numbers of points against the Oilers. Frank continued his career in the NFL, 
After being in the NFL, he didn't go to work for ESPN. He went to seminary. He went to RTS Charlotte, Reformed Theological Seminary in Charlotte, graduated with an MDiv degree, then became the president of RTS Charlotte, then became a pastor, a Reformed Presbyterian pastor for a few years, and now is back coaching professional football, now the head coach of uh, the Indianapolis Colts. Two weeks ago, the Colts beat the Bills in Buffalo, sad to say. But after the game, and I encourage you to go look at the, the, the YouTube video of his press conference after the game uh, from November 21st of this year, so just two weeks ago, and he begins the press conference by recounting how 30 years ago he had had this great game in Buffalo leading this comeback against the Oilers, and in the press conference after that game, Frank gave a testimony in the press conference. And he recited the lyrics of a song as a part of his testimony, this song called In Christ Alone. It's not the In Christ Alone that, uh, by the Gettys that we think of today. It's a, it's a previous uh, setting of that idea of Christ alone. But uh, Frank, um, in his press conference, two weeks ago, begins the press conference by saying, you know, essentially um, that uh, his hope and his life and in every victory um, is Christ alone. And he quotes the lyrics of the song that says, in every victory let it be said of me that my source of strength and my source of hope is Christ alone. And it wasn't preachy and, and you know, pulpit pounding but he simply said, we won a great victory today. And 30 years ago, I won a great victory. And I just want you to know that the greatest victory in my life was accomplished by Jesus, not by me and not by these players. Simple, humble, but clearly direct. Saying more than, well, I give praise to God for the victory. Saying, my hope is in Jesus Christ, crucified and raised. I encourage you to go look at the video. But that's an example of someone seeing, discerning an open door for them, given a platform, having a microphone in their face, bearing witness to the mystery of Christ, the victory of Christ over sin, over death, for him and for all who believe. The last thing that Paul says in terms of being an influence in the world, of our ability to influence the world positively for the sake of Jesus Christ is not only to be devoted to pray steadfastly and be determined to proclaim Christ in every circumstance, but be also finally deliberate to pursue outsiders. That we ought to be deliberate to pursue outsiders. And that's what these last two verses get at. Verses five and six, Paul says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders. Notice the, the physical language of that. Walking in wisdom, but walking, what? Toward outsiders. Not just walking around and being amidst outsiders, but walking in wisdom toward the outsider. That's not something we typically do well in a Christian subculture, in a Christian bubble. It is easy for us to, to gather together in a space like this and be content with this being a one faithful expression of the Christian life, and it is, 
but to sometimes miss that God equips us here to send us out there to walk in wisdom towards the outsiders around us. Outsiders being those who are not Christians, who are unbelievers, who are walking in darkness, who have not encountered the truth of the fully divine, fully human Jesus Christ who has accomplished redemption and made peace for us by the blood of his cross. Those are the outsiders. Outsiders are not defined according to their, their, their race or ethnicity or their class or their gender or their vocation. Outsiders are those who are outside of Jesus Christ. And we are to be walking toward them, toward them with wisdom. And Paul mentions two specific ways that we can walk in wisdom towards outsiders, our schedules and our words our schedules and our words. What does he say in verse five? He says, walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Making best use of the time. At the beginning of your workday today, you're probably gonna sit down or drive towards your uh, work or whatever responsibilities you have today, and you'll think about, what do I need to be doing with my time this day? What are my priorities? What must I do what can I delegate to someone else? What can I delay until this evening or till tomorrow? You're gonna to think about how to order and structure your day and your time. Paul says one of the ways and perhaps a primary way we need to be thinking about our schedules about how to make the best use of our time is how we're walking towards outsiders. How we are living our lives with an eye towards extending the gospel to those who have not yet believed. And so thinking about what could I do, it doesn't have to be massive and earth-changing. You don't have to quit your job and go out into the street and preach the gospel. You could. <laughs> but he's calling us to be deliberate, to be intentional in every circumstance. That could be a five-minute conversation with a coworker. That could be a 90-second engagement with a waiter or a barber. But he's calling us to plant seeds, to walk in wisdom, to make good use of our time with outsiders. And then when we speak to them, to let our speech always be gracious and seasoned with salt. Gracious speech, that's not something that we see a lot of in our culture today, Gracious speech, meaning not only just kindness or giving people the benefit of the doubt or not being accusatory or attacking, but gracious speech truly, biblically, is speech that would hold out the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Seasoned with salt, commentators have different ideas of what this means, but probably seasoned with salt means that there is a special tact to our speech towards outsiders. There's a special way of uh, having deliberate wisdom, of being, of speaking in an engaging and in an appealing way, speaking to them in a way that's, that's easy for them to hear. Just like salty food is more palatable, that we would speak about the truth and the hope of the gospel, not in a way that gives offense by how we speak, let the offense be the cross, 
but that we would speak in a way and in a manner that is both gracious and interesting and appealing and engaging and hopeful to outsiders. One of the people that um, did this the best uh, was my father-in-law. My father-in-law was a pastor and he was ruthless about using every opportunity and any engagement with another human being to make a beeline for the gospel. He was a evangelist at heart. And I only met him once before he died. I started dating Aaron, my wife, while he was ill with cancer and um, uh, spent just a few hours with him on, on actually two different occasions. But I attended his funeral and there was a visitation at the funeral home the night before and um, he was the pastor of a fairly large church in St. Louis and into the funeral home not only came family members and church members but taxi drivers and waiters and barbers, home repair folks, neighbors, people that his own family had no idea he had ever met or shared the gospel with. People who, um, some of whom came to Christ, some of whom were simply influenced positively by his witness. Many of whom never joined his church, but he was faithful to use every opportunity to make a beeline for the gospel, to be gracious, to be wise, to be compelling with the hope of the gospel. And so if we are going to be world-influencing Christians, world-changing Christians, if we long to have a positive influence on this city, just as those early believers had in the city of Jerusalem, if we long to see the city of Dallas changed, what must we do? We need to pray. We need to proclaim Christ and we need to pursue the outsiders. And notice that none of those three are about us. It is not about commending ourselves or commending the brand of PCPC. It is about the power of God. It's about the person of Jesus. And it's about speaking in the ways that Christ spoke to a hurting, lost world. And so, Lord, help us. Lord, help us to have the motivation and the ability to carry this out in his strength and for his glory. Father, we pray that you would use this passage today to help us to think carefully and deeply and strategically about how it is that you have called us to influence this city. Our neighbors, our coworkers, our friends, that we would be men devoted to prayer, determined to proclaim Jesus Christ, and deliberate in pursuing the outsiders. Father, we pray that you would renew us in these things. Help us to learn from one another as we've had successes and as we've had failures, and to spur one another on more and more as we see the day of Christ's return drawing near. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.